Hey, good morning, Grace Chapel. Uh, there's a Gaelic proverb. I don't know if you like Gaelic proverbs, but it's, he who will not look forward must look behind. Are you always looking over your shoulder? Any of you? Past decisions, past choices, things that you thought would work out a certain way, or are you, would you consider yourself to be a forward thinker? Ask your partner, whoever you're sitting with today, <clears throat> and they'll tell you whether you're a forward thinker or not. For instance, how many of you saw this recession coming? Of course, everybody goes, oh yeah, yeah, I saw, I saw. After the fact, it's really easy to say, oh yeah, I saw it coming. Would you say you're wise? You're wise concerning and um, evaluating where the current trends in our current culture are taking us? Do you see where we're going? I mean, do you have some wisdom on that? Um, a whole different way of looking at it. How are your investments doing? Everybody laughs. Now, hopeful or despondent? It doesn't take you very long in life to figure out that the future isn't very clear. It isn't always clear. Consider a few of the world's worst predictions ever, okay? First one, King George II. I love, I like George. But he said in 1773, he said that the American colonies had little stomach for revolution. <laughs> Apparently, they had bigger stomachs than he thought. I mean, yeah, yeah. According to the Western Union internal memo in 1876, get this, tele telephones are, are, had inherently no value to us. Today, more people have cell phones than toilets. That's a fact. Look it up. In 1939, the New York Times said, here, here listen, 1939, you ready? The problem with TV was that people had to glue their eyes to a screen and that the average American wouldn't have time for that. Look at us now. Look at me now. Right, okay. Decca Recording Company rejected the Beatles in 1962, saying, we don't like their sound, and guitar music is on the way out. Matt, what are you doing up here with it? That was 60 years ago. Predicting the future is difficult, if not an impossible endeavor. Um, sometimes you get it right. Right? Have you noticed that? Sometimes somebody will get it right, and they look like a genius, so they take advantage of that one moment in their life, and they give talks, and they write books, and they make a lot of money. But most of the time, we don't get it right. Can we admit that? The Bible predicts things. How many of you believe that, that the Bible predicts things? Yeah. Like, like actual historical events specific wars, um, even this thing called a coming Armageddon and a future paradise. Question, how do we know that the Bible can accurately predict future events? How do we know that? The answer is because it has a 100% track record so far of doing so, just to put that out there. Daniel, a couple of examples. Daniel predicted the coming of Alexander the Great. Malachi, the prophet, predicted that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Jeremiah predicted a 70-year captivity for Judah, and it happened. Jesus predicted the destruction, the complete and utter destruction of Jerusalem in, in Matthew chapter 24, and in 70 AD, it happened. And the list can go on and on and on and on and on. You can look them up for yourself. 
But you and I, we still need to be a little cautious when it comes to telling others what the Bible says about what is yet to come. We need to be careful because look at this. In Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, the disciples are with the 11 disciples, apostles are with Jesus for the, for the last time before He's going to be taking up back to the Father in heaven. <clears throat> so when they had come together, they asked Him. Here's what they asked Him. Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom of Israel like the prophecies in the Old Testament predict? And He said to them, you know what? It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. The apostles weren't told. The apostles, those, those 11 at this point strong men, were not given that kind of knowledge. And they even asked Jesus in person. Question then, why is studying the future in biblical prophecy important today? How would you answer that? Because sometimes I think as Christians, we're told not to focus too much on prophetic issues because what's really important is the gospel. Have you, have you ever heard that? You heard that? I've heard that. And we're told to focus on the gospel. And by the way, yes, <laughs> We're told to focus on the gospel because it unites us as opposed to future events which can tend to divide us. And in response to that kind of a prevalent attitude in the church, consider this, that future events are a part of the gospel. You can't have the gospel without future events. Future events are a major part of the good news where it is predicted in the gospel of Jesus Christ that Jesus is coming back again. Yeah, however you want to say that. He's returning. He's coming back. That's a part of the gospel, that we will be in His presence one day. Are you looking forward to that? Yeah, please make it today. That God will complete the salvation process He began in me and in you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. That we're going to receive glorified bodies Oh, man. That we're going to be freed once and for all from our struggle with sin that seeks to drag us down every day. And that's all part of the gospel message. You know, the Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy, you all probably got one on your shelf at home, I know. The or maybe some of you brought it today. The Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy lists that there are 1,239 prophecies in the Old Testament, that there are 573 prophecies, eight prophecies in the New Testament, for a total, I think it's up there, yeah, 1,817 prophecies in the Bible. And these prophecies encompass about 8,352 verses. And in the entire Bible, there are 31,102 verses. I know some of you have counted. So over a quarter of the entire Bible is prophecy. Why is there that kind of quantity if it's not all that important? I ask you. Paul taught detailed events surrounding the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is future prophecy. He did it primarily in a city called Thessalonica, and he had just planted a new church there, and he'd only been there about three weeks. And Paul thought that it was a crucial teaching that the church needed to be introduced to at a very early stage in its development and its core growth. 
We looked at a lot of those passages earlier as we went through this core faith series. See, God wants us to know certain events about the future. He, that's why He's put them in here. Why? So that we can live our lives today with confidence, with confidence about what is going on and what is going to come. Assurance. God mercifully gives us light at the end of the tunnel with biblical prophecy. It's a critical part of our core faith. So what we're going to do today, first of all, word for the day, because we have a word every, every Sunday in this core faith series. Here's our theological word for the day. Here it's up there. The study of future events is referred to as futurology, right? Well, actually it is, but <clears throat> that would be too easy. How about eschatology? Because it's supposed to be complicated when you study the Bible. I don't know. I will refer to it as futurology from now on. What we're going to do this morning is we're just going to take a brief survey. We're going to focus on some of the key future events that the Bible predicts, and as I've already said, they're going to be 100% fulfilled. And we're going to do it not just to know and to get all excited and talk about it, but to strengthen our core faith muscles to live today. That's why we're doing this. There are, by the way, handouts on the back table for today uh, to take you, if you want to go on a deeper dive into some of these areas, um, you'll probably find that helpful. So the first thing we're going to look at is something that I see a lot in the news. I have been, I've been seeing it, especially through this last two or three years, that there's a, a future rapture and that there's this great tribulation coming. Okay, those are the two things. And there are two primary passages on the rapture. We're going to do that first, which are both written by Paul. The first one's 1 Thessalonians 4. Let me read it, starting in verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel. By the way, we're doing angels next week, okay, angels and demons. From heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so will always be with the Lord. The second one's in, second, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. I'm going to start reading in verse 51. Behold, Paul says, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We're not going to stay dead. But we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Bring it. The rapture. <laughs> the word rapture is from the Latin word raptuo, which means, what do you think it means? Oh, it's up there. <laughs> to be caught up. Didn't I just read that? Didn't I just read that caught up in the Paul passage? So even though the word rapture is not found in the Bible, what it means is found in the Bible. It's just a Latin word. It's like eschatology is not in the Bible. Just, okay? The future is. And most evangelicals agree that a rapture will happen. Most of them do, across the board. But the difference evangelicals have is when it happens, 
Um, when it happens in relationship to what is called the next word I want to look at, the great tribulation and the return of Jesus Christ at the end of that great tribulation, this, this future event, this rapture sees believers in Jesus Christ, as we just read, who are alive. So if that happened today, who would that include? If you don't die between now and Jesus coming back later today, us. Yes, this is us. So we who are alive are going to be caught up to meet Jesus without having to die physically. I think that's amazing, don't you? Oh, that would be so neat. But then these believers in Christ who have already passed away, died, and we know many of them, they're going to rise from the dead actually before us, and we're going to meet together in the air with Jesus Christ and receive immortal, glorified bodies. It's like, yeah, that's a prediction I'm counting on. And there are three major views on when being caught up, depending on what Christian denomination or um, church you happen to be in, will take place. The first is called the pre-tribulation rapture view. Um, what do you think that means? Pre-tribulation. What do you think it means when the rapture is going to occur? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to occur just before the start of the seven-year tribulation period. The second view is called the mid-tribulation. When do you think it's, it's going to happen? Yeah, in the middle. Very good. This is, isn't this, eschatology is so easy, right? Yes. And the last one is called the post-tribulation rapture view, which sees it taking place at the end of the seven year. The post and the pre are the two most popular. Okay. That came up pretty good. Um, today, those are the two most popular. Now, since that, this rapture is obviously still future because you and I are still here or else we missed it, all right? And there are differing interpretations from the same biblical passages by really good scholarly evangelical Christians. You and I should hold our position, if you have one, with a great deal of humility. We really should. A, re, uh, a humility that reflects the ambiguity on the issue. If someone has taken a particular view on it, and I have, maybe you have too, I'm going to hold that with an open hand, not a clenched fist. What I mean by that is this. So, so, the, so the tribulation comes, and I'm still here. Like, say that happens, and I'm alive. Well, I'm now a mid-tribulationist. <laughs> and if I survive and get to the middle and it goes past, I'm a... And I'm probably not going to survive, but I could. It could happen. You might too. We can do it together. And look at each other and say, we were wrong. <laughs> okay, what about the Great Tribulation? That was the rapture. Or in a lot of New Testament contexts, it's just called tribulation. It refers to this un unprecedented time of global suffering and trial. It's horrible. We should talk about it with sobering talk. And it immediately precedes, comes before the second coming, the return of Jesus Christ when He physically comes back to earth. Jesus stated in Matthew 24, starting in verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation, such as, listen to this, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be again. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. 
but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. If you think about all the different types of suffering and all the different magnitudes of suffering that have already been experienced in our world's history, this statement by Jesus himself is really sobering as to how devastating this time period is going to be. In other words, this devastation is far worse than any Christian persecution by any Roman emperor. Worse than that. The famines in Africa, the horrific genocides that take place across our world, the, what the United States of America saw in its own civil war in which hundreds of thousands of Americans were killed at the hands of their fellow countrymen. What the world witnessed in World War II through the Holocaust, it's worse than that. The 2004 Asian tsunami, which over 200,000 people were killed like that. And I didn't even bring up a worldwide flood in Genesis. In another passage dealing with this same time period, John writes in John 7, 14, and he said to me, answering, who are these people that I'm seeing? These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Martyrs who lose their lives for their faith and stand for Jesus Christ. So what do we know about this great tribulation? Well, many believe it's going to last about seven years. It's a time of God's wrath. It involves at least three series of judgments from God towards the world that are global in nature, and there are the the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, and they're all in Revelation 6 through 18. The suffering and conflict, as we just mentioned, will be greater than has ever been seen, and it involves this unique manifestation of evil driven by our accuser, Satan, the Antichrist and his false prophet, and that's in 2 Thessalonians and in Revelation. People are going to be faced with a stark choice to repent and worship God or to fold and worship evil and then suffer and receive the consequences of that choice. But it does end after seven years by God's grace and His mercy. Then what? Well, then you've got the future second coming of Jesus Christ. When Jesus ascended back up to the Father 40 days after His resurrection, it was recorded by multiple witnesses. And it began a, a prelude that you and I are in right now to his second coming. Luke records it in Acts 1, 9 to 11. Listen to this. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And when they were gazing into heaven, I mean, that's what we'd be doing, right? We'd just like, whoa. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus had already predicted to these men his second coming earlier in Matthew chapter 24, but this ascension here showed the disciples, it displays to you and I how and even where Jesus is going to return because this is on the Mount of Olives. And in Zechariah, a prophecy 
hundreds of years before the event and thousands of years before the second coming. Zechariah says in chapter 14, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two. Yes, he's coming back. And the Mount of Olives is going to split in two and create a valley from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mountain will move northward and the other half southward. And then the Lord, my God, will come and all the holy ones with him. In the last book of the Bible, which is actually the full name is the Revelation of Jesus Christ. We call it Revelation for short. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the revealing. It's the unveiling. The entire theme of that book is centered on the return of Jesus Christ. And it begins in Revelation 1-7 with, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, and those who pierced Him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, amen, so be it. And it ends with Revelation chapter 19 through 22, describing the majestic and awesome climax of Jesus' return as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Well, then what? Well, the Bible tells us. The future millennial reign of Jesus Christ. The word millennium does not come from the millennium falcon in Star Wars. Just want to... Some of you have never seen Star Wars, like, what? I know there's one of you. No, it comes from the Latin term mille, which means 1,000 and is not to be confused with mille down here, whose name means gentle strength and strong in work. So I throw that in there. It's the way my mind works. Sorry. In Revelation chapter 20, in those first seven verses that describes this period, the particular length of it being a thousand years is mentioned six times. I think, it's, I think it's important. John writes in chapter 20, this is the first four verses, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and the accuser, Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the pit, and he shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And that he must be released for a little, and th after that, he must be released for a little while. And then I saw thrones. And seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands during the great tribulation seven-year period. They came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Well, then what? Because we don't know a whole lot about a thousand years. There's a lot of ideas out there. Check them out with God's word every time. Well, then what? There are future judgments. And there are two basic types of judgments that are described as yet to come and are told to us very clearly in the Bible. One is for believers and one is for unbelievers. And that is always the basic dividing line, Jesus. 
What do you say about Jesus? And Jesus stated in John 3.18, whoever believes in me is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This final judgment, this final condemnation of unbelievers who have rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior is sometimes referred to as the great white throne judgment, and it's given that name because that's how John describes it in Revelation 20. I'll start reading in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. But there's also a final judgment, or should I say reward seat, for all believers in Jesus Christ. And this sometimes referred to as the bima, which is Greek for reward, judgment, based on the Greek word related to that judgment, which Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all, how many, of you, how many of us will stand here if you know Jesus as your Savior? All of us. So we must all appear before the judgment seat, that's the bima seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The judgment's not related to whether or not you get eternal life. The fact that you're standing before that seat means you're in. You have received eternal life. It's a permanent assurance. But rather the rewards or loss of rewards that await when we finally get to experience eternal life in reality. If you want to read more on this, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, around verse 10, before and after, will help you out tons. Okay, is there a future eternal hell? You hear that preached a lot. And if there is, what is it like? Well, first of all, the word hell in Hebrew is Sheol, or sometimes referred to, and Jesus did, as Gehenna which was an actual valley outside of um, Jerusalem where they burned garbage with fire. And in Greek, it's Hades. We know from Scripture it's a place of fire. Pretty clear. We know that there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. We know that there's darkness. We know that there's a separation from God, which may be the worst part of the whole ordeal and that there's eternal destruction, 2 Thessalonians 1.9. And from these verses and many others, it's clear that the Bible pictures hell as a place of conscious eternal torment. But notice that there's also a future event predicted for hell, Hades, Gehenna, death. In Revelation 20, let me... um, It's in verses 14 through 15. It's right after that great white throne judgment of believers. Then death and Hades were thrown into what? The lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. 
And if anyone's name's not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's hell's future event. On the converse side, remember, we're doing a brief survey today, right? Each one of these, we could have gone dug deep, but that's not what we're doing. On the converse side, is there a future eternal heaven? And if there is, what is it like? Because I hope it's better than hell. In heaven, we're told in Scripture quite often that there's this continuous praising of God by saints and angels. And we'll even look at this a little bit more next week when we look at angels. Paul stated that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 1 Corinthians 5.8. After the rapture, we, we read just earlier, we're all going to receive these resurrected eternal bodies. We've got to live somewhere. Heaven is the place where you live with Jesus, you're with Jesus forever, eternity, as well as with fellow saints. That was in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 where we read, when, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them, those who have, who have died and already come up to meet Jesus in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air so we will always be with the Lord. But also notice when you read Scripture that the present heaven, whatever that is, comes to an end. It will be no more. That there's a future event for heaven just like there was a future event for hell. There's a new heaven and even a new earth that's going to be created for us to exist in and it's described pretty clearly in Revelation chapter 22 in verses 1 through 5. We know that from that description of the uh, destruction, I guess you call it destruction of the old heaven and the old earth and the recreation of a new heaven and a new earth, that there's going to be what was in the Garden of Eden, there's going to be a tree of life existing there that will give healing to the nations as it's described. And God's glory itself will be the only light we need. There's no more sun. Don't need the stars. Don't need the moon. There will be no more sin. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more crying. Revelation 21 verse 4. And we're only scratching the surface this morning. You probably felt that, right? This has just been a brief survey of biblical prophecy about the future. And despite all the debates, and there are a lot, and despite all the denominational splits that have occurred over future events, uh, uh, splits about the rapture and when it's going to happen, the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. Is that literal or is that figurative? Perhaps the most important point, the takeaway from this morning, from our look at future events, eschatology, is this. When Jesus comes back, he will defeat his enemies and he will reign. Bottom line. The details aren't nearly as important as the reality that he's coming back. And it's not who's in heaven as you look around in the world, but it's will you be there? Is that your destination? And unfortunately, through the years, numerous people have tried uh, setting the date for Jesus Christ's return, setting the date for the rapture, and it's been to the church's detriment and mockery by the world. One of the latest 
was broadcast and publicized on family radio by a gentleman named Harold Camping, who predicted that Jesus would come back on May the 21st, 2011. And there's one of the actual signs of the, the yellow marker is not from the sign, but they were all over the country, these signs. Get ready, May 21st, 2011, Jesus is coming back. It didn't work out all that well. Uh, and so he said he was wrong and chose another date, October 21st. That didn't work out well either. Uh, we need to remember the words of Jesus always. Matthew 24, verse 36 through 39. But concerning that day, and that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son. Are you telling me that in the Trinity there are secrets? <laughs> but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood... Humanity was eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware, completely unaware, until the flood came and swept them all away. And so will be the coming of the Son of Man. That's what's coming. Instead, you and I should be ready. Instead, you and I should be found living in light of Jesus' future coming, nothing else. We need to be concerned about our own accountability, not somebody else's. Each of us need to individually be concerned about our own accountability before Jesus Christ using the gifts and the abilities and the treasures that God has given to each of us out of His grace, out of His mercy. Jesus Himself gives us our basic responsibility. These are, these are the words I want to leave you with. It's Matthew 13, 15, verse 13. Therefore, stay alert because you do not know the day or the hour. Would you rise with me? We're going to praise God for what He has revealed to us about our future. He's given us everything we need He's prepared us to go out those doors and to minister and to be His light in a world of darkness. We lack nothing. We may think we do, but we're foolish if we do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, before You and You alone, thank You for the coming of Your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank You for the hope that we, Your children, by faith in that Son and His death on the cross, have the hope we have in a future, future events that are laid out for us, Old Testament, your New Testament to us, that we should meditate and live by a lot more than we do. So by your grace and with your strength, your encouragement and your power, thank you for the challenge that you've left with us this morning. And now we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.